everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. There's a, there's a many great deal of things going on today in our world that can cause fear. Mass shootings, identity confusion, racial unrest, terrorism, the economy, political turmoil, and the list goes on and on. Feel free to fill in the blank. Everyone has an opinion about it. It's actually quite ugly. Nevertheless, it is into this world that God has put us as his followers. He has left us here to combat and be the antidote to the poison of the world. As people argue back and forth, we are called to be, as Jesus said, salt and light united together to show the world that there is a greater way forward. And that is through our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. It's only through him that wrongs are really righted, injustices are dealt with, and that we can see where change has to begin. And that it's not talking about the world or in the political sphere. I'm talking about in us. That's where it has to begin. And through God working in and through us, we step into our world to show a way forward. Through our words, but more through our actions, as we seek to sacrifice ourselves more and more so that the name of Christ might be revealed. The troubles that the world is going through are nothing new. There are, have always been injustices. And while we work for change, we know that while change may occur, true and lasting change is only going to be seen in eternity. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't try to make changes now. In fact, some of the people that have made the most and greatest contributions to society are those who have had their mind set on eternity. And as, and as men and women left on this side of eternity, we labor on, seeking to follow Jesus and allow him to make us the antidote to our sin-sick society. The only question that we need to really consider, though, is how? Or perhaps, what does this look like? And how might these changes occur? How am I to be different in my family? Let's break it down. How am I to do this in my home, in my work, at my school? How can I be the antidote when I seem so weighed down by the concerns of everyday life? Well, I want us to look at that today. We are actually in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And I know many of you are probably familiar with this passage, but I hope to really open it up for us in pretty credible ways. Let's look. Here we go. And they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, before we jump into this passage, I want to review for a moment. The church at this time had grown exponentially, and the things that we are about to look at are happening around this early church as they were meeting together in homes and at the Jewish temple, which was the center of Jewish life. This is a snapshot, though of a very early church. You have 3,000 brand new believers coming together so we can reasonably assume that the 120 we have learned about over the past few weeks were going from house to house to help instruct them on how to follow Jesus. This is before buildings, before the Bible was finished, and it was a young, immature church that is trying to learn and understand what it means to follow Jesus. Keep that in the background as we go through this. And let's start off with verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this word devoted is a fascinating word in Greek. It means to persevere, to continue steadfastly in something. And here it means to give constant attention to a thing. 
What are we to be devoted to? What's, it, what's he talking about there? And before I answer that, perhaps we can talk about a bit what our devotion is currently. Let's look at our culture in this 21st century globalized society and what are we devoted to? In our culture, in the West, we are devoted to our jobs, our activities, our social groups, families, finding rest, keeping comfort, success, money, identity, and fulfilling our potential. And then perhaps our, our hobbies, TV, social media, music, sports, and, and being liked. I can't but help think that we are devoted to many things, but I'm not sure if God is one of them. And if it is God, then it's a God of our, our own creation, not the true biblical God. Are we devoted? We're all devoted to something. The question is, what are we devoted to? And what, must, what makes us think that we're devoted? If we are honest and really look at what we are devoted to, we would find that it's really not God. If we're to be the antidote to our world— then we are to follow the example of the early church who was made up of people who had been truly changed by Jesus. And through them, we can see that we are to devote ourselves to the things of God. In prepping for this, this episode, our, I, I was talking with some friends about the early church in Jerusalem versus the church in Laodicea one of the early church congregations. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that church, allow me to give you a bit of background. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to seven different churches who were real who were real churches at the time of John's writing in the last 90s or in the year 90s before we get to the year 100. But who acted in these churches really as timeless examples. That's what John uses them as, as timeless examples of churches across time. Jesus speaks to this church and indicts it actually in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our contention was that it was this church. It's, it's actually, as I talked with some friends about this, it's our contention that this is our modern American church. We are neither hot nor cold, which is to say useful. We are good for nothing. We are rich and have prospered and think of ourselves better than we are. And I know that this is very difficult for some people to hear right now because there are so many things that are flying at you that are in the negative. But we cannot remove the negative when God is speaking to us. We have to be able to listen and know that when he shares such things with us and imprints them or impresses them upon our hearts, it's to our benefit because he loves us. Jesus's words are true. We are wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. When he counsels to buy gold refined by fire, he's actually referring to devoting ourselves to acts that will stand the test of judgment. He counsels us to clothe ourselves with white garments that will cover the shame of our nakedness. The garments refer to acts of righteousness that show we have been changed by Jesus. But not being clothed brings into consideration whether they were believers in Jesus in the first place. And then they are counseled to anoint their eyes with salve, which is to say that they are to find a way to seek the reality or see the reality of their condition. 
the context seems to appear that those to whom he is speaking are believers who have an opportunity to repent while there is still time. See, God shows these things to us so that we might have the opportunity to repent, a word that is largely lost in our culture today. It means to to respond to Jesus in an almost violent way of turning away from that which God deems to be wrong. Meaning that we we don't just have Jesus as our best friend. We don't just have Jesus as this this moral therapeutic deity, this long-bearded guy in the sky who is always loving and always caring, and he never demands, he's never wrathful, he's never angry. That such an image like that is not from God. You see, God is holy, God is loving, God is wrathful, God is good. God is abundant in mercy. I mean, God is all of these things. And here, God is showing us something about ourselves, and we need to take stock and respond properly. To respond to Jesus, we are given an opportunity to change the direction of our lives through him. How then do we devote ourselves to the things of God to show the reality of our devotion? Well, verse 42 says that we are to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is the study of God's word. And their words become most of the New Testament. I mean, the the apostles' teaching was what they had received and learned from Jesus in their time with him. and, And their words then in turn became the New Testament. If we're to be followers, passionate followers of Jesus, then we have to know his word. We have to study it to show ourselves approved unto God. We can't know God apart from his word. God has exclusively and primarily revealed himself through his word. And this new group of believers in Jerusalem needed to know how to follow him in their homes, in their marriages, and with their children, at their work, with their family, friends, neighbors. How well do we know God's word? If statistics can be believed, then biblical literacy is at an all-time low Yet, we have more resources than we've ever had before. What gives? We need to know God's word and not just know about it, but need to intimately read it, apply it, study it. Do you know, I mean, even the books of the Bible, let's get real general. Do you know the books of the Bible? Can you identify God's plan of salvation in the scriptures? Do you know where to go when you are tired, when you are stressed? were misunderstood. It has been said that a person who has a Bible that is falling apart is a person who is not. Is that true of us? Notice what else they did, though. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, this word for fellowship in Greek is koinonia. It's a word perhaps you may have heard before. It's a specific word indicating a specific kind of fellowship. The term is further emphasized by the definite article the, the fellowship, not a fellowship, but the fellowship. It's a specific kind of fellowship, an intimate fellowship found with those who are united with Christ. What is this fellowship and how does it happen? It may seem trite, but it's true. It happens when we spend time together. We have a very hard time with this. Our homes have become so privatized to become idols. We've idolized our alone time because we're so busy doing everything else. If you have children, then we have stuff for the kids that we have to get them to. Soccer, basketball, band, math club. And then there are our men's and women's groups that we're a part of. Evenings are filled, too filled to spend time together. And that's just in the West. In the East, there are other issues that you are facing all the time. We feel that we can't deny our children, especially in the West. The problem is that we have is that we have placed a greater priority on those things and giving them certain experiences and seeing their potential. And in the West, I think this is more prevalent in the West than it is the East, but potential itself has become an idol. We have become too focused on what we think we can be. But at what cost? I'm not saying we don't try, we don't push, we don't give these opportunities to our kids. But if we are not prioritizing God over those things, then what is the cost that we are paying? Because potential has become an idol of sorts. We become too focused on what we think we can be, 
We've committed all kinds of sins at the altar of potential, which is one of the reasons I believe that we are so stressed. We are trying to do it all. Instead, we need to build a Sabbath of rest into our lives. Do you rest? We've talked about this in previous episodes. A Sabbath is a preaching to ourselves that God is in charge and that we are not. We are to find time to rest. And the the day is not meant to be for all of our hobbies, concerts, marathons, and our remodeling projects. It is a time set aside for God and his people. One of the hallmarks of Judaism was the Sabbath. And while Jesus fulfilled it, the principle of rest still stands. Most religions created a sacred place whereby the location was holy. But in Judaism was placed a sacred space of time whereby we would stop and by ceasing activity remind ourselves that God is God, to get back in rhythm with God. I don't know if you've ever heard or seen a band where some of the instrumentalists are playing one tempo and another instrumentalist is playing something entirely different, and it is horrific to hear. Instead, sometimes they have to stop and start over. In many ways, that's what the Sabbath rest does. It causes us to stop and start over. It's not just for the holier-than-thous. It's not just for us to be isolated either. We can't just be by ourselves doing this. We are to be together as a church, as a body. If you're not in a church, you need to be in one. And for them and for us, our time together must go beyond Sunday morning. They met day by day. And while that may not be entirely replicable in our modern society— The principle still is there. We are to be together, devoting ourselves to be with other Christians. And not just any Christians, but true believers who know us best, who can know and see our lives over time so that they can speak truth into our lives and we can speak into theirs. If we don't have this kind of fellowship with other believers, we're going to try and find it somewhere else. And oftentimes it's either in our hobbies or someplace we shouldn't be, maybe just with people who speak our language or our favorite TV show, cartoons. I mean, it can be fantasy football, movies, sports, fill in the blank. It, it, it could even be online groups. I'm seeing so many of those. I mean, it might even be in an athletic pursuit. They were not only devoted to meeting together, but they were also devoted to the breaking of bread. Scholars are actually divided between this being a simple eating of a meal together or whether it is referring to communion, also known as the Lord's Supper, because the term is employed to describe both of them. It's difficult to believe, though, that Luke had in mind here here just an ordinary meal, placing the expression as he does between two such religiously loaded terms as the fellowship and prayer. I would think that it was an intentional meal. Whether it was communion or whether it was a general meal, we can see that it was required for them to sup together, to eat together. Eating together is a powerful thing. It means acceptance. And and largely, we've lost this in the West. But when I interact with people from different cultures, I find out how true this is. That's why Jesus was accused of some really radical stuff. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And again, you don't really know or we don't really get the full flavor of what this is, what it means to be a tax collector. But these were Jews that were working for the Roman government. I mean, Jews saw them as traitors and Romans saw them really just as Jews. They were kind of this isolated, outside group that everyone hated. Even today, people don't like tax collectors and people that work with the IRS. And notice that it's tax collectors and sinners, which denoted acceptance. I mean, that's why he ate with them. It it showed acceptance. There is something powerful that happens spiritually when Christians are together and we eat one another's food. I am taking in part in your family, your history, your culture and person. It is a powerful tool. And we're going to talk more about that in just a few moments. And next we are to seek God in prayer. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Simple, really. 
pray with other believers, rebel against the status quo, ask God to invade our lives, ask him to invade and save unbelievers, beg him to bless, pour out your heart in prayer, intercede for others and commune with him. God, turn us into praying people. I mean, do what you need to do, Lord. And can it be said of us that we are devoted to seeking God in prayer? I don't think so. I think other generations had a greater understanding of prayer. Now, we can post, sure. We're great at posting. We can devote ourselves to posting and protesting. But are we good at prayer? I pray God does make us into people of prayer. C.S. Lewis, as he grew in popularity and his books were being published around the English world, he would receive letters from all over the world, with many of them asking for him to pray for them. And he answered every letter he received. And he took their requests seriously. He actually took certain times of the day to retire from company just so he could pray for all of the requests that folks had sent to him. Lewis, for those who didn't know, didn't drive. He actually had a man who acted as his regular Uber driver. They got to know each other quite well, and the driver told the story that Lewis got in the car and said, Morris, I'm sorry, I can't talk for a quarter of an hour. I need to do my prayers. We are to devote ourselves similarly, to get on our knees in the morning, pray in the shower, kneel by your bed and pray for your children at night, go stand over them if they're young or even if they're old, pray blessings upon them when you put them to bed, pray, bef- pray for them, pray for their future spouses, pray that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, pray that God would use them. With my children, I pray that God would save them and I pray that g- I pray with them that God would use them. I pray for their next day, whatever that might be. But I also pray for their future spouses. And then I pray that God would give them a burden for different parts of the world. And we go around the world praying for all of the different countries of the world. A different country every night. And sometimes the prayers are short. Sometimes they are long. Sometimes they're quick. But I pray for them. My mother did the same with me. She would pray with me by my bedside. We're to devote ourselves similarly, to pray on our knees, to pray in the shower, to pray in the car as we're driving, to pray as we walk our pet, pray when we're making dinner, pray when we go to work, pray at the stoplight, pray as you are making breakfast, pray when you're at the line at the grocery store or if you're in the marketplace, pray if you're on your boda boda. When we pray, we'll find that the things and people that we thought were impenetrable icebergs of unchange actually become butter in a frying pan melting under the heat of God's Spirit working in people and situations. I want to skip over verse 43 for a moment and focus on verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. It's pretty simple, really. Believers were together. There was a mutual commitment to one another, not just jumping in randomly. They were devoted to knowing God and being a part of this new community. If we are to be an antidote to the world, then we need to depend on each other. And here's what I mean by that. It's an interdependence. So interdependence so that we don't know where we would be if the church wasn't a part of our lives. We are to be a spiritual family. For many of us, though, what we want to do is just remain spiritually anonymous because we're afraid of people knowing our junk or we're afraid of commitment. We are commitment phobes. However, God calls us to be a spiritual family, and we are to depend on one another, to stick by one another, to help one another out in life, especially in times of trouble. We share resources, give financial or material help. And we can't do that if we are not together. How can I know what you need if you're only in and out on a Sunday morning? One of the ways that I gauge the spiritual effectiveness and the vitality of a church body is how long do they hang out after the services are over? How do we do that? How long do they wait? Because people want to be together. We are a spiritual family, and we need to be there together. And it isn't just about what we get out of it, but what we give. You can't sit back and wait for someone to do it for you, but put yourself out there to build build relationships with others. Rod Dreyer, in his book, The Benedict Option, writes, 
Along those lines, a tree that is repeatedly uprooted and transplanted will be hard-pressed to produce healthy fruit. So it is with the people in their spiritual lives. Rootlessness is not a new problem. In the first chapter of the rule, and he's talking about St. Benedict's rule, St. Benedict denounced the kind of monk that he called, and I love this word, gyrovague. Here's what that means. They spend their whole lives tramping from province to province, he wrote, adding that they are always on the move with no stability. They indulge their own wills and are even worse, the saint said, than the hedonistic monks monks whose only law is desire. If you are going to put down spiritual roots, taught Benedict, you need to stay in one place long enough for them to go deep. How true. And when I hear about how many pastors are having to move, how frequently they have to move, or a youth pastor that has to move, and I hear people saying, praise God, praise God, praise God, and yet these guys are being kicked out or moved so quickly, it tells me a variety of different things that they have a really vague notion of what it means to be a disciple, or they only see it in a very limited or one-dimensional way. And they don't see that salvation is transformative, even into the depths of the relationships that one has in one's life. It's not just getting a person to sign the dotted line of salvation. I was talking to someone the other day and mentioning that we had started a 501c3 nonprofit ministry. And they said, how many decisions do you have? As if that was the only indicator of what one's, of a ministry's effectiveness. And that treats people like a product. And it doesn't help people to see the holistic notion of life, to to help people grow in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, as if sanctification is left or kicked by the wayside. Long as we got him justified or saved from the fires of hell, it's all great. It's not that. It's so much more than that. That's why the early church was called the way. It was transformative to how they lived their lives, that they had relationships with one another that went deep, and they had to learn how to encourage one another, forgive one another, admonish one another, greet one another. I mean, it was all of these one another's. They were having to learn what it means to be part of a fellowship. But today, in our very modern, globalized, traveling, rootlessness world, it is very difficult for people to have any type of deep relationships. We get offended and then we just leave in a moment and we don't think about what that means to our families or the greater communities around. And we put on a smile and say, praise God. And yet we don't really delve down deep to fix or work through these relational issues that come up. Dreyer goes on to note that we live in a time that we could be referred to as liquid modernity, which actually compels us to reject stability in our culture as foolish, meaning that all of the things of the modern world is, is created is this almost just inability to find root and be stable, that we're just moving back and forth all the time, and we are not committed to deep and lasting friendships. In fact... Polish sociologist Zygmunt Bauman, who wrote, he wrote this, the hub of postmodern life, it's this postmodernism, by the way, is this way of thinking that we're in right now. If you've ever seen the movie Finding Dory, there's this big giant turtle named Crush, and they get on the um, Eastern Australian current. They call it the EAC. And this current carries them along in the ocean. And there are thought currents that are carrying us along in our world today that we don't even realize is carrying us along. And postmodernity is one of those. And it's, an, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a belief system that there is not one truth that unites all things together, but everyone has their own little truth. Now, the problem is, what do you do when you have all different groups claiming that their truth is right and it directly opposes another group? How do you determine that? There still has to be a uniting truth. We could go on and talk about postmodernity all day long, but he says this, the hub of postmodern life strategy is not identity building, but avoidance of fixation. And here, and let me draw that out and what he's talking about there. Actually, let me explain a little bit more or read another quote from him. He said, this means really being free from all commitments, unbound by the past for the future, living in an everlasting present, 
The world changes so quickly that the person who is loyal to anything, even to her own identity, takes an enormous risk. Instead of believing that structure is good and that duties to home and family lead us to live rightly, people today have been tricked by liquid modernity into believing that maximizing individual happiness should be the goal of life. The gyrovague, the villain of St. Benedict's rule, is the hero of post-modernity. I don't know if you caught everything that's there, but here, let me uh, to explain what he's saying there. He's saying that we have in our modern society no loyal to anyone except our own happiness. And we deny any structure that limits us. And we totally minimize any duty to home, family, or how to even live rightly. We've been tricked, hoodwinked, into believing that maximizing our individual happiness is the goal of life. Actually, it's a trap. It reminds me of a discussion I had the other day with a fellow pastor who said that people today, all they want to do is chase experience, especially parents with their kids. That's why they put them into so many different activities, because they treasure experience and make it an ultimate virtue. Instead of showing them what it means to be a disciple of Christ, they put at the preeminent highest point or prioritize this idea that they need to be have or have all of these experiences. And if I'm denying them those experiences, then I am failing as a parent. No, your job is to prepare your son or your daughter to live as a Christian in the midst of this world and to testify about Christ in whatever way, shape, or form that he has gifted them to be. Meaning that if you, if God has called your child to be an engineer, then they need to use their gifts to be the best engineer they can be and point people to Christ through that. If it's to be a homemaker, then that's what they need to do is to be the best homemaker that they can be. If, if God has called them to be an astronaut or a physicist or an athlete or whatever it might be, working in a warehouse or working in a factory to do their best ability to do their job well to point other people to Christ through that. Too often, though, we say it's about getting achieving their dreams, but we never define what that dream is. We just say that it's to be famous or to be successful. And what does that mean to be successful? Let's say they become a CEO of Google and yet they turn their back on God. You have gained the whole world, but lost their soul. So we have to reorient ourselves and get a different definition of what success is in the sight of God. I'm not saying that we don't try to achieve. I'm not saying that we don't go off and have careers. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, what I am saying is, is that you are to use whatever gifts you have to point people to Jesus. And that means you do your job well to the glory of God and testify about him wherever you are. You make God's glory your highest priority, not fame, not money, not power, and not prestige. That is not what we are to aim for. For, but that in our culture today is what is being so esteemed and it's being communicated to children, even in church families, that that is the highest priority. And then parents wonder why their kids turn away from Jesus, even though they go off to go off to achieve those dreams that their parents gave to them. It's because that they didn't show them how to glorify God or make the glory of God the priority of their lives. They were always prioritizing other things, thinking that they were doing what God wanted them to do. But they really didn't evaluate it. They didn't take it to the cross. They didn't take it through the word of God. They just were being carried along by the cultural currents and the cultural values. This is where we need community. German Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred in World War II, wrote about the importance of community in his book, Life Together. He says this, A Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and courage. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother, man, as a bearer, and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He's saying we need one another. We need to speak truth into our lives. This is why we need to be in community like the early church was. 
We need to depend on each other. Now, I'm not saying that we don't, we, and I'm not saying this in the negative sense where we don't take responsibility for our lives. No, I'm saying is that we recognize God's responsibility or the responsibility we have before God to glorify God in whatever sphere he has us to be. But we open up ourselves to other people so that we can show Christ to them and they can show Christ to us. We need to be also better listeners. I mean, if we are to depend on each other, then we it requires us to hear the needs of other people. We're not very good listeners. You know, one of the reasons that George Washington was chosen to be the president of the United States, the first president, by some of our founding fathers, I mean, as they were trying to figure out who was to be president or who should they put up, they realized that Washington was the only one who really listened and he wasn't a big giant windbag. Many of the early founding fathers really loved to hear themselves talk, but not Washington. He listened better. And we need to become better listeners. All of us do. Intentive, attentive listeners. Most people want to be heard, but we have a tendency to speak before we hear. I, I know I'm guilty of this and really miss what, what people are dealing with, and that causes them greater hurt. I mean, what causes you greater hurt? You're hurting really bad, and you share it with someone, and it doesn't even seem like they listened at all, but they already formulated a reason for your hurt and totally gloss over the pain that you just spoke about. And why are you so bothered? Because they, fe- they, they failed to listen to you. We all want to be heard. And if we don't hear, then we, and we really miss what that person is dealing with. And that does cause greater hurt. Whether it is, especially in the West right now, racial issues, cultural practices, family problems, work stress, we need to hear about how we can help others. And this may mean listening to things that are hard to understand or even offer sympathy for, but that's what we do. I have found that when I really do listen and a person feels that they've been heard, leads to greater compassion and a greater opportunity for intimacy in a relationship and greater fellowship. When we talk about race, and it's right now first in its forefront at the evangelical conversation that makes a great many of my white Christian evangelical brothers and sisters uncomfortable, and I can understand why. We don't want to say something incorrect. We often don't understand the issues that brothers and sisters of color often have to deal with, or we feel that it's just their perception and it's not reality, or we may feel that there is simply a lack of personal responsibility. I know I was talking with some friends. We were talking about a fear of greater racial conflict that seems to be simmering under the surface and ready ready to explode. And it's because people aren't listening to one another. It reminded me of a professor I had when I was a student at Moody who was African-American. Whenever we talked about the subject of racism, many of the other students in class were white. But he talked about it having gone through it and experienced it himself. He talked about the racism of people and things that he had to deal with, with many that many of us in the room had never understood or ever dealt with. And he gave a simple example as going to the grocery store and getting shadowed by some of the employees. In other words, these were employees that were kind of stimming around the corner, watching him, seeing if he was going to steal something. And he asked how many of us had been shadowed. Most of us never felt that we had been. We all shook our heads in the negative. And he said, how is it that me, a black man with a doctoral degree, gets shadowed by those who are by people when the students in this room who are white never get shadowed? I realized then that he had to face issues that I did not. He made me want to understand more. Where is prejudice? Do we all still have opportunity There are issues of systemic racism that are built into some of our institutions. And while there are equal opportunities for all people, theoretically, maybe legally, we fail to consider the weight of time or past experiences of prejudice that our relatives and those closest to us have experienced and the navigating of that, that the seemingly insurmountable institutions that we believe are already prejudiced against us is in our perception or actual practice can weigh us down. 
Now, I know some of my white brothers and sisters might say that they disagree. But that weight is emotional and felt. And while the theoretical and practice is there, and some have entered into it, it is hard emotionally and intellectually to cross a frontier when the perception and often reality confronts and seems to keep us back. And I'm going to give you a small, very infinitesimal wave to help people understand what that is like. And I know that this is such a minor thing, and it's so incomplete, and it so fails to capture the full weight of what I am trying to illustrate. But it's the only way that I can really think that some people can understand it. Imagine you are a sports fan. Now, I am in the Chicago land area. And for years, I've interacted with Cubs fans. I didn't grow up a Cubs fan, but having been in Chicago for any period of time, it is really hard not to become a Cubs fan. And I know some of you would vehemently disagree with me, but just stay with me for a moment. When you became a Cubs fan, prior to 2016, the Cubs were known as the lovable losers, the team that was trying to reverse the curse. And every year, there was this new idea that the Cubs would win. And after a long time, I mean, it was over a hundred years before they ever won the World Series, but people started to wonder, are they really cursed? Are they ever going to get over the hump? Are they ever going to be able to do this or do that? And that emotional weight, that's something you have to face year after year, past history. And before they won in 2016, it was something that only a Cubs fan could understand the weight of that, that feeling every year. Will we ever be able to overcome the hump? And in 2016, when the Cubs won the World Series, people were weeping. I know I lived in Boston when the, when the Red Sox, or I'd moved to Boston right after the Red Sox won the World Series, and for them it had been 86 years. And people were taking newspapers to the graves of loved ones to show them that they had finally won. Now, why do I share this? It's because when you have faced the loss and the, the, the errors, the tragedy, the disappointment, year after year after year, and everyone coming against you all the time, you feel like you cannot win. Theoretically, you can win. Legally, you could win. But the weight of time and history weighs over you like a shadow. Now, when we look at race in America, there is something similar that's there. Now, it's not, it doesn't affect everyone the exact same way, but it affects people. And when they see how their family members how to, had to react, how they had to live, the prejudices that they had to face, it may not legally be there, but it's definitely present. And I talk about this because the gospel does talk about the issues of racism. True followers of Jesus have, have to come face to face with the recognition of our spiritual blindness and ignorance, and also have to be prepared to deal with the issues that others face personally and institutionally by listening, confronting our own personal biases, and then treating others the way we want to be treated, and affirming their personal experience, if that experience can be shown in reality and practice, which is rooted in the experience of those who have also gone through it. In short, we have to table our own experiences as far as we are able to hear and minister to those who are going through difficulty. Now, as, as we are going to see, the church has faced issues as racism and cultural differences before. This is not new. Okay, this issue is not new. When we get into the New Testament, I mean, half the conflicts that are there, half of the things that come up, people gloss over this all the time, but they're cultural and racial. Oh my gosh. It's so unbelievable how prevalent it is when you have the eyes to start to see it. I mean, we get caught up in titles, like it's the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and people want to build doctrines on tongues and miracles and all these things, and they gloss over some of the very issues that the church had to face, and then what they do is they enshrine some of these idealized like snapshots of something moving in time and say, that is how it's supposed to be. What we learned from the early church is saying, we want to be like this. Yes. But we recognize that this was a snapshot in time and there are ebbs and flows and there's going to be failures and there's going to be strengths, but this is the continued direction in which we want to move. And if we're to really be this church that God wants us to be, 
then we need to see that God has spoken to these issues. And the church has faced issues such as racism and cultural differences before, and it can be seen in almost every single culture in one shape or another, and we are still confronting it now. I know, like I said before, I had a lot of Africans in my church, and I had Africans that would not share their name with other Africans because they feared they would be part of another different or another tribe. I've had uh, some Africans who were so filled with pain because of what one tribe did to them. And you can see this in any culture. This is not a, just a black and white thing. There are prejudices in every culture. There's, there's prejudices in skin tone, in Spanish cultures, Korean cultures, Indian cultures, tribes, backgrounds, ethnicities, castes, economic status, educational status. We are all having to deal with these issues and the Bible speaks to every one of them. <sighs> And these are not only the needs that people have. I mean, the issues are, are, are numerous as the people who make up the body of Christ. And we must endeavor as far as we are able to listen to the needs of those present that claim the same Christ we do by creed and practice. And that's why we have to hold our lives with an open hand. Look, I mean, if you look, let's get back to our text. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We have to be willing to give up our possessions, money, status, comfort, and reputations. You know, those in the early church were selling their goods and giving to the church so that the needs of the people could be met. You can't receive if you're not willing to give up. Give up to get. What in your life are you holding on to right now with a closed hand that God is calling you to open up? He's saying, listen to me, trust me, open up. We are so often clenched up with so many things and are willing to give them up. But we must hold our lives with an open hand, allowing God to take and redirect as he wishes. And as we hold our lives with an open hand, we need to help as we are able. They sought to meet the needs of those around. But how about us? Are we willing to be generous to help? Are we willing to help with our finances? I know in talking to some pastors in some churches in a really good church have those who are, are giving 50, I mean, 50% of the members who consider that church's home are being generous. Only 50%. That's not good. We can't help those around us if we aren't giving our resources to help because that's what God has called us to do. Now, notice verse 46, that they were day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Raised in Judaism, the temple was the center of everything, but it also ended up, being, ended up being a large enough place for a bigger crowd to gather to talk about Jesus. And this lasted until the first persecution of Christians developed, causing Christians to be dispersed from Jerusalem. However, they kept meeting in homes. And I believe that we are too as well. We are to practice hospitality. And, and, and here's the deal. We've really lost this in our contemporary society. There are pockets of it in different places. But I, I mean, I, I love the conversation that I had with Jason George, the, the Jason George's the other day, this deep conversation. I would highly recommend you go back and hear him because he is he is rocking it when it ever comes to understanding the topic of hospitality. We have lost it. In matter of fact, I feel like he just grabbed hospitality off the shelf, shined it up. And now I thought it was just a rock and it's a diamond. I mean, he was talking about how even in the early church, they prized hospitality to the point where Clement said, and this is nuts that he even said this, I can't believe he said it, that we were saved by faith and by hospitality. That's nuts, but that's just how highly regarded hospitality was in the ancient world. His point was that we need one another to be a support network to each other. We have to open up again and again, opening up our homes, homes. Apartments. It might be a dorm room. Who, whatever it is you have, for prayer, for fellowship. It doesn't matter how nice your home is. And I know some people are embarrassed. That it's not as nice as someone else's home. But we have to work through that if we're going to be the body of Christ. If you have a hole in the wall or the wallpaper is coming off, open up your home anyway and step into other people's homes. That's why there are small groups in churches to meet in homes. And that's why people are joining small groups, not that they just meet together, but to do life together. 
sharing our lives in the unprogrammed moments. And I think that this is happening in churches, but it needs to happen more. Invite people over. Give them permission to come over. I want to stop for a second and get a word from our sponsors. Because today's show was brought to you by our friend and our favorite real estate agent, Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to call Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She comes with years of experience and loves people. Kathy is trustworthy and cares about her clients. I know because I am one of them. She is my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she not only helped us purchase a home, but has regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. Give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her that Travis Michael Fleming sent you. Now let's get back. If we are to do what God has laid out for us today, then it's going to take courage for us to dare enough to follow. Here's what I mean. If we are to be the antidote to this fallen world, then it's going to take courage, some chutzpah. It's not an easy thing. It is easy to say, but it's hard to do. How do we do this? Well, here's I'm going to give you four different ways here how we can go about this. Here's, here's the first one. It requires you to step out of your comfort zone. This means crossing barriers, class, education, personality, background, experiences. If we can't cross our comfort zones, how can we reach others to demonstrate the reality of the gospel in our lives? Step out. Two, stay the course. This isn't going to be easy. Here's what is going to happen if we do this. We're going to find failure. It's inevitable. We may find that opening ourselves up to others is painful and too hard, but don't give up. Stay the course. Do we think that it was easy for the early church to do? Huh. We have a really wrong idea of what the early church was like. It's as if they were all walking around with halos all the time, speaking in they and thou. No, it wasn't like that at all. I mean, they were constantly having to wonder who was going to turn them in. It had to have been hard for them and immeasurably harder when the Gentiles started coming into the church. Woo, that guy used to worship Zeus or that girl, that lady over there, I, she was a prostitute and, and they don't, may not even know the story. That guy stole from me. That guy was a bad business deal. That guy, I hated him growing up. And it could be all those kind of things that they were dealing with. We have to keep at it, work through the awkwardness and love people. Thirdly, we have to learn to share our faith. Now, I know that many of us may not get an opportunity to share every aspect of our faith right away, but start a conversation and play the part. Here's what I mean by that. You can start a conversation of faith. You may not get, let's say you have four things that you want to share, but you may not even get to start, um, really, I mean, get to share all four of them, but maybe you can share one. And maybe someone else has already shared one and you might be able to share two or three or four or whatever it might be. But let's share our faith, and not as used car salesmen, but as friends inviting others on a journey to consider the truth of who Jesus is. Share our faith. How else was God adding to their number daily those who were being saved if people weren't sharing their faith? Evangelism, conversation, becoming a spiritual tour guide whereby you share Jesus with them and invite them to look at your life. Don't feel again like you're a used car salesman and have to get them to purchase the gospel. Nope, wrong approach. Invite them to go on a journey with you as you seek Jesus, or as Paulo said, follow me as I follow Christ. And lastly, savor Jesus's work. You know, what happens when this kind of life is lived that I'm advocating for? Several things. Let's go back to verse 43. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe came upon people before the apostles did their thing. Awe was inspired because of what Jesus had done on the cross. He was bringing people together to display the unity that he has with his Father and the Spirit. Awe came before the miracles, although the apostles did miracles. 
apparently miracles that they could do that we could not duplicate in the same way. But their miracles were highlighting and authenticating that they were working with Jesus. They were ministering in his name. Look at verse 46 and 47. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God was at work. They were acknowledging his work among them. We're grateful for it. Praise God for it. And God gave them favor with all people, believers and unbelievers alike. But the work of Christ was so prevalent within them, and they were sharing their faith verbally and through their lives that God brought many people into the church. Verse 46 reads, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's a present participle in Greek, and that means that they were being saved, being transformed. It's not finished until we get to heaven. And God added to the church, became part of the body. They committed together and they became members. We are to commit together in membership, commit together to do community together. Are we devoted to God and the things of God? Well, in order to do that, first of all, we got to know him. Do you want to be devoted? Then trust in Jesus. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I know that not all of my listeners are do, know Jesus Christ yet, but here's the beautiful thing. He offers himself to you that if we believe in Jesus Christ, that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If we are to be the antidote to this sinful world we live in, it takes taking a step to follow, one that we can all take. A step to follow in obedience by belief as seen in baptism, a step to commit to others to help expand the kingdom of God in the world. Do we believe? And are we part of this movement that the devil can't stop? Don't wait. Be a part of it today. And, and that's it for our our episode for today as we walk through this passage. And don't go away yet. If this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then would you do us a favor? First of all, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. Secondly, would you consider being a part of our watering team, our Apollos, I mean, our Apollos army? We're looking for people to pray for us as we go about this new ministry. Without God building the house, the builders labor in vain who build it. And we're looking for financial partners. If you would like to partner with us to water the world for Jesus, then please go to our website at apolloswater.org and hit the support us button. We're looking for monthly supporters. If you give $2 a month, you will have, you will have a rain membership. You will have made it rain for us. And we say, go ahead, play in the rain. We won't tell your mother and you will feel like a kid again. Thanks for helping us out. We really appreciate it. There's the next level up, though, is the $5 a month level. That is our poor level. The skies are opening up. And when you support us at this level, you get early access to new content every month. And the third level is our drench level of membership. That's $10 a month because sometimes you want to do more than play in the rain. You want to dance in the puddles. And when you support us at this level, you also get access to exclusive bonus content from our interviews. The fourth level is our drench level of membership because sometimes you want to do more than play in the rain. You want to dance in the puddles. When you support us at this level, you get access to exclusive bonus content from our interviews. The fourth level is the flood level of membership. That's our $25 a month level of membership. This is when the waters are rising fast. And to show our appreciation, consider yourself invited to our quarterly live stream event. It will be a grand tour of what we are planning next and an opportunity for you to tell us the things that you want to hear about. And the fifth level, this is our tsunami level. This is our $50 a month level. Look out. This is a wave of ginormous proportion is headed your way, and it's our gratitude. We are so grateful that you helped us out with this. You get everything from the lower levels plus your name and lights or pixels on our website. Thank you so much. And you get a shout out. And our first ever shout out goes to Chad Thompson of Illinois, because Chad decided to be a tsunami for us. He is our first ever partner. Thank you so much, Chad, for partnering with us to water the world for Jesus. 
And of course, you can feel free to surprise us, be our hero. Whether it's a one-time gift or monthly support, more than we have listed, partner with us to saturate the world with the knowledge of Jesus. And lastly, before we go, I want to let you know about our first ever Apollos Watered Weekend Men's Retreat. We will be meeting at Phantom Ranch Bible Camp in Muckwanago, Wisconsin, where we will open the Word of God and talk about how we might thrive in the middle of this world. And that's taking place from February 19th through February 21st of 2021. You can sign up at Phantom Ranch's website, phantomranch.org slash events. And lastly, I could never do any of this by myself. I want to thank my ministry running mate in all of this, Kevin O'Brien. He is our executive editor and chief strategy officer. And then our social media team of Eliana Fleming and Rebecca Badal, who keep everything beautiful and out in front for everybody. And last of all, I want to thank Brian Dana, our audio engineer, who always manages us to make us sound good. That's it for today, everybody. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Everybody.